Welcome to our Wednesday night uh, fellowship. This is really a time where we get to eat food together and sing songs together and hear uh, from God's Word together. And all semester long, uh, we've been doing a relationship series, looking at relationships that uh, Jesus has come to make good, beautiful, right, whole again. So our relationship with God, with ourself, with others in the world. And tonight, uh, we're going to talk about sex. Um, before we do, um, I wanted to share a story uh, with you that I learned about just recently. Um, a few years ago, uh, the Washington Post decided to do a little social experiment. They hired a violinist by the name of Joshua Bell to play some music at one of the city's uh, busiest metro stations. Does the name Joshua Bell ring a bell for any of you? He's a world-famous uh, violinist. Days before he played in this D.C. metro station, he was in Boston where he, sold, uh, he played to a sold-out crowd at Boston's uh, Symphony Hall. Tickets were selling for like $100 a piece. And like on this weekend, he had come to D.C. and he was going to be playing to like standing room only crowds. But this is where the Washington Post enters in. They approach Joshua Bell and they tell him, we'd love for you to go to L'Enfant Plaza, again, one of the busiest metro stations, on a Friday at rush hour, 7 o'clock in the morning. We want you to wear street clothes so nobody recognizes who you are. And we want you to play on this Stradivarius violin, which is worth $3.5 million. They said, we just want to record it and see what happens. And he's up for it. He's like, sure, I'll do it. It sounds awesome. So Friday, January 12, 2007, he goes to the, the, the DC station. He puts his little hat out. He starts playing the violin. I just want to set the scene for you, okay? In the, city's, in the city's busiest metro station, you have one of the world's greatest violin players playing on one of the world's most expensive and important violins, playing some of the most beautiful music the world has ever heard. Joshua Bell plays six pieces for about an hour. And in the span of the hour, over a thousand people walk right past him without a second's thought. A very tiny number stop to listen, like they turn their heads and then they keep walking. And an even smaller number drop money in the case. Here is this international treasure presented to these people for free. Yet most people walk right by. They dismiss it. They dismiss the music. They ignore him. They keep their headphones in and their heads down. And they miss this incredible beauty that is right before them. Why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story tonight because we're talking about sex. And particularly what the Bible has to say about sex. And what the Bible has to say about sex is actually really beautiful. Maybe startling so. Yet most of us, when we encounter the Bible or anything it has to say, we dismiss it, we ignore it. We're not unlike those DC Metro riders. We kind of keep our headphones in and our heads down. And we miss completely the beauty that is presented before us right for free. I don't want to do that tonight, right? I don't want the beauty of this teaching, right, to pass us by. I want us to pay attention to what it has to say, first of all, because it's beautiful. But secondly, I want us to pay attention to what it has to say because it's clear. 
And we need clarity on this subject. See, our culture is so confused about the nature of sex and its importance in our lives. Right? On the one hand, we all grew up hearing sort of the Andy Warhol school of thought. Andy Warhol, the famous pop artist, who famously said, sex is the biggest nothing of our time. Sex doesn't mean anything. Right? It's no big deal. It's as significant as a hot dog. Right? As significant as a cup of water. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're in the mood, you have sex. It's no big deal. It's the biggest nothing of our time. Now, on the other hand, we grow up listening to the Woody Allen uh, school of thought. Woody Allen famously said, I don't know what the question is. I know that sex is the answer. I don't know what the question is, but I know that sex has to be the answer. In other words, sex is everything. It's not nothing. It's everything. Right? A life without sex is not a life at all. See, all across the country and right here on this college campus, you have these two competing and even contradictory narratives going on about sex. On the one hand, on the one hand, sex is nothing, right? On the other, it's everything. It's the most important thing. It's what defines you. Right? Who you have sex with, how often you're having sex, right? This is the basis of your identity, your worth. Right? We hear both of these narratives. You can see the confusion, right? You see the lack of clarity. As I said, just like those Metro riders, we need to take our headphones out. We need to lift up our eyes and our ears and hear what the Bible has to say, not simply because it's beautiful, but also because it's clear. Let's look at our passages for tonight. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and Genesis 2, uh, 23 to 25. This first passage might sound familiar to some of you because it's one of the first passages we read at the start of the semester. It goes this way. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now let's jump to Genesis 2. Genesis 1 kind of gives us a big picture. Genesis 2 zooms in, we get a little bit more detail. God's just made Adam, he's just made Eve, and this is what Adam says next in verse 23. Then Adam, right, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This concludes our reading for tonight. Because this is God's word, it's not my own. I'm going to ask that he would help us understand it. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for just the beauty of this night, um, the setting sun, the rising moon. Lord, thank you for good food. Thank you for this good word. I pray you would feed, it, uh, feed us with it as surely as you would feed us with pizza and cookies. Uh, Help us to see your goodness. Help us to see your beauty 
its clarity. Um, help us to rightly apply whatever it is you want to say to us tonight. Help us to rightly apply it to our lives. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things um, that I want you to take home with you tonight. Really three key ideas. The first is that sex is a gift. We'll see that from our passage. The second is that sex is powerful. And thirdly and finally, sex is a sign. Sex is a gift. Sex is powerful. Sex is a sign. The first point I hope that you take home with you is that sex is a gift. Now, I'm well aware, because I was like you, that when you hear the word sex and Bible in the same sentence, you're not thinking maybe sex is good, right? What comes to mind is that, okay, what John's about to say is that sex is not good. Um, What you're accustomed to hearing, um, and maybe you're expecting me to say tonight, is a bunch of don'ts, a bunch of do-nots. If you're not thinking this way, odds are your friends think this way, that what the Bible has to say about sex is that it's outdated, it's old-fashioned, it's repressive, it's regressive, it's puritanical, it's joyless, it's stupid, it's dumb. Again, because what a lot of you have heard is a bunch of don'ts, a bunch of do-nots. Don't have sex before marriage, don't look at porn, don't masturbate, Fill in the blank. A lot of these don'ts are fueled by fear. If you do these things, you're going to get pregnant. If you do these things, you're going to get an STD. If you do these things, you're going to ruin your, your reputation or you're going to ruin your life. This, fearless, this fear-laced sort of list of don'ts If this is the only thing that you've ever heard Christians say about sex, let me me be the first to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that's the only thing that you've ever heard Christians say about sex is a list of sort of fear-induced warnings. It's not wrong, right, to warn people about the misuses of sex. The Bible certainly does that. But if that's all you've heard or if that's all you ever hear, you're not getting the whole truth. Because the truth is, is what the Bible says about sex is overwhelmingly positive, not negative. What the Bible says about sex is surprisingly beautiful and refreshingly clear. What is the biblical view of sex? Well, right away, it rejects the Andy Warhol and the Woody Allen schools of thought. Sex is not nothing or meaningless. Sex is incredibly meaningful and powerful. However, it's not everything. It's not essential. And it's certainly not the basis of your identity. What's more, sex is not dirty or bad. But on the contrary, sex is beautiful and it's good. Sex is God's gift to us. Take a look at our passage uh, from Genesis 1. After creating human beings, what is the very first thing that God commands them, God commands us? Is it to worship him? Is it to pray? Is it to aid the poor? It's none of these. It says right there, 
the very first thing that God commands human beings in the Bible, right? The very first thing that he commands us to do is to have sex. The very first commandment God gives human beings is to be fruitful and multiply, right? To make babies and just wait till you learn how to do that, right? It's awesome, right? If you continue reading in your Bible, eventually you'll stumble upon a book called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs, depending on your translation. What that book is, is an erotic love poem celebrating sex between a husband and wife. There are parts of that book uh, and others like it in the book of Proverbs where there are such graphic descriptions of the naked body and such candid descriptions about the joys of sex that it can make you blush. Even in our hypersexualized culture, it can make you uncomfortable. But it's there. Right? It's in the Bible. The Bible is not anti-sex. It celebrates it. It writes poetry about it. Which is why if you or anyone else says the Bible is anti-sex or that it views sex as dirty or wrong or bad, is simply an indication that you've never read it. If you say that, you just haven't read it. Because from cover to cover, the Bible talks about sex as a good thing, as a gift from God. God wants us to enjoy it. He made it, and he made our bodies to enjoy it. He made it for us. He made it pleasurable. This, on this, right, God and our culture agree, right? Sex is good. It's pleasurable. The problem is, is that God wants to take this a step further, but our culture simply wants to couch out here, right? Sex is good. I got it. Thanks. You keep going. We'll stay here, right, on the couch. I love how a former RUF uh, at UVM student named Lydia explained this to me uh, a couple of years ago. This is her quote. She said to me, Our culture thinks sex is about pleasure only, but reducing sex to pleasure only is like trying to bake a cookie with nothing but sugar. If you put a bunch of sugar in the oven, what's going to come out is going to be sweet and addictive, but it's not going to be a cookie. Some things will still be missing. I thought that was brilliant. Right? If you put a bunch of sugar in the oven, what's going to come out is going to be sweet and addictive, but it's not going to be a cookie. Some things will be missing, right? Indeed. Reducing sex to pleasure only is a half-baked idea, right? Cookies are more than sugar. An iPhone is more than Instagram. And sex is not less than pleasure. It's just much more than that. The Bible says that sex is a pleasure, right? It's a gift. It's beautiful. It's good. And consequently, we should take care of it like any good gift that we might receive. But there's another reason why we should take care of it. We should take care of it because it is incredibly powerful. And this brings me to point number two. Sex is incredibly powerful. On the 4th of July... Right down here at the waterfront, Burlington's waterfront, there is a gigantic fireworks show. There's blasts of color, there's explosions of light in the sky, lots of people ooing and aahing, people clapping, right? It's gorgeous. What would happen, however, if I took the same fireworks show and I tried to have it in my house? 
the very same thing, only this time in my house. Lots of some of you are smiling, right? You know what would happen. It'd be disastrous. There'd be lots of people who are burned, right? My house would be absolutely destroyed. In its right context, this powerful thing brings joy and color and life and laughter. But in its wrong context, the very same thing can be highly damaging and destructive. Sex is like that. It is this incredibly powerful thing, but context matters. Where you use it matters. What is the power of sex? The first power is the one that you're most, it's most obvious, right? It's procreative power, right? The power to create new life. I'm not going to focus on that. You all know that already, right? But sex has a twin power, right? It's unitive power. Right? Sex has the power to glue lives together. And that's really what I want to focus on tonight. Right? It's unitive power. You see this in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the act of sex... Bodies are not just being intertwined, right? Souls are. We are becoming attached in the act of sex, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally as well. And this is not just Bible talk, right? This is, there's a truckload of scientific evidence that points in the same direction. We could call it the biochemistry of bonding. I want you to listen to what Dr. Miriam Grossman, who's a psychiatrist uh, at UCLA, writes in her book, Unprotected. Dr. Grossman writes, neuroscientists have discovered that a specific brain cells and chemicals are involved in attachment. Oxytocin is a hormone, a messenger from one organ to another with specific tasks. Oxytocin is sent from the brain to the uterus and breasts to induce labor and to let down milk. Not a surprise, then, that oxytocin is also involved with maternal attachment. But Dr. Grossman continues, More relevant to my patients at this stage in their lives, they're all college students, is that oxytocin is also released during sexual activity. Here's the million-dollar quote. Could it be that the same chemical that flows through a woman's veins as she nurses her infant, promoting a powerful and selfless devotion, is also found in college women hooking up with men whose last intention is to bond. Do you hear what Dr. Grossman is saying? Sex is this incredibly powerful bonding agent. It is a kind of biochemical, spiritual, relational glue. What Dr. Grossman is saying is that biologically, biochemically, oxytocin is this hormone that unites a mother to her child, and it is the same chemical that's released when you have sex with somebody else. That, that same thing that bonds a mother to her child is the same thing that is released when you are hooking up, when you're having sex. Right? It is spiritual, relational glue. And this is why it is so painful when you break up with somebody that you've had sex with. And it is also why there is no such thing as casual sex. 
because there is nothing casual about this. What we're talking about is incredibly profound, right? Souls and bodies being enmeshed. In the movie Vanilla Sky, which I can't really recommend to you, but there is a scene that's really poignant, very powerful. Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise, right, they're playing this role, or playing the roles of a couple who are having a sexual fling. Tom Cruise is a hotshot playboy, but then he starts to have sex with somebody other than Cameron Diaz's character. And this really upsets her. It, it sets her off. It's just driving her crazy. And as she's driving a car with Tom Cruise beside her, she says to him, right before she crashes this car, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? What Cameron Diaz is saying in that scene is the same thing that neuroscientists are saying, which is what the Bible has been saying all along. That sex is a powerful, unifying thing. It doesn't just attach bodies, right? It attaches lives. It attaches souls. When you have sex with somebody, you are communicating something whether you intend to or not. What you are saying in the act of sex is that you are all in. And that sounds graphic, pardon the pun, but what you are saying is I'm all in. Everything I have is yours. Now that makes sense in the context of marriage. When a couple gets married, they bind themselves one to another in every possible way. Legally, financially, socially, psychologically, etc. Husband and wife make a public permanent promise to be all in with each other for all of time. Which is why when husband and, and, and wife have sex, what they're saying with their bodies matches what they've said with their words. Right? In that way, sex merely stamps or underlines or highlights what has already been said, right? the promises that they've made. Sex confirms or ratifies right, the promise. It's strengthening the bond. It's deepening the attachment. It's telling the truth. But outside the context of marriage, sex says something very different. When you have sex with someone that you're not married to, you're saying that you're all in, but you're not. You're saying everything I have is yours, but that's simply not true. Were it true, you'd be married, but you're not. Right? You're still keeping your options open. You're still keeping the exit lanes clear. Right? You're saying one thing, but you're doing another. Which is, you're lying. You're not just lying with somebody, you're lying to somebody. You're saying I'm all in when you're not all in. And listen, lying, deceit, falsehood, that is always the greatest threat to your relationship. Under no circumstances do you want to introduce deceit into your relationships. It introduces guilt. You're attaching yourself to someone that you are not attached to, who has zero obligation to actually text you back tomorrow morning. And that, by nature, creates stress. It creates possessiveness. It creates jealousy. It creates pain. It causes a split. And it's painful. I know I'm standing up here tonight, but I, I really wish 
that I wasn't elevated. I really want to communicate this message to you like down here, right, at your level, because I'm not someone who knows this because I've done it perfectly. Like, I really haven't. Uh, I'm really saying this in solidarity with you as, as someone who has the scars of mistakes. And so I... I don't want you to see or hear this as as me talking down to you really in any way, but I really want you to hear it as me saying this beside you. Um, Before my life as a campus minister, I was an Outward Bound instructor. Some of you know that. I led backpacking trips in California. And I remember one time before a backpacking trip, I just went out in the woods all by myself. I wanted to understand the course area that I was going to be leading students in. I was all out kind of in the mid-Pines wilderness just outside of Yosemite all by myself. And I had a map that showed me where a campsite was. And it was by a stream, and I knew I needed to get there because I was running low on water. The problem was I was up here, and the, and the, the map said that my campsite was down there somewhere. I could see where I was. on the, I, As I looked like sort of over this ridge, I could just tell that it was down in that general vicinity. But I didn't know where the trail was. And so I decided to bushwhack my way to where I thought this thing was. The problem was is that this hillside was full of this really thorny bush called manzanita. And as I went off trail and tried to find my way, I just got cut up left and right. I looked like I had been whipped by the time I actually got to the campsite. Blood was pouring down my arms and legs and body because I didn't know the trail. Uh, because I had gone off, like, off route. And look, that's how I want to talk to you about this tonight. Not as someone who's done it perfectly, but someone who's, like, gone off trail and doesn't want you to do the same thing. Like, someone who's like, look, I know the right way to go now, and it's not through the manzanita bush. Okay? You crave coherence. You crave intimacy. But this is not the way to do it. This is not the right way to go about it. The reason why the Bible says that sex is for marriage is not because it has a low view of sex, but because it has a really high view of sex. Sex is this really good, really beautiful thing. And it's really powerful, like fireworks on the shores of Lake Champlain. And in its right context, it has the power to give life and to unite it. But that very same thing, outside its proper context, can split you apart, it can cut you wide open, and it can destroy. I know that you know what I'm talking about. I know that everyone in this room knows some of the pain, right? some of the destructiveness that I'm referring to. Even if you've never had sex before, you are not unscathed. right? You are not immune from the effects of lust or pornography, of objectification and or rejection. We have all in this room been wounded sexually. We all stand in need of healing and hope when it comes to our sex and our sexuality. And this brings me to our third and final point. Sex at its best is a sign. Sex at its best is a sign. About 25 years ago, 
uh, a psychologist named Arthur Aaron wondered if he could make two strangers fall in love with each other. He devised a simple experiment. Bring two strangers into a room and get them to answer 36 questions that he's prepared. The questions start off pretty shallow and light. Right? These are the first three in the experiment. Question number one, given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? Question number two, would you like to be famous? In what way? Question number three, before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you're going to say? Why? As the guinea pigs in this experiment work their way down the list, the questions progressively get more intimate and vulnerable. For example, if you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret having, what would you most regret not having told someone? And why haven't you told them yet? So, the strangers go through these questions. By the time they get to question number 36, they've disclosed a lot about themselves, but the experiment's not over yet. Before the experiment is complete, the participants need to look into each other's eyes for four minutes without looking away. I think I've held Megan's gaze, like staring into her eyes for maybe 15 seconds. I don't know. It's not four minutes. Four minutes is a long time. It's only 240 seconds, but it can feel like an eternity. That's what these, uh, these people in the study are supposed to do. They ask these 36 questions, and then at the very end, they sit in silence, and they just stare into each other's eyes for four minutes. That's the experiment. Here's the thing. Remarkably, within six months, two of the participants got married after doing this experiment. <laughs> Arthur Aaron and all the people in the lab were invited to the wedding. And in 2015, a journalist from the New York Times hears about this experiment. Her curiosity's peaked. She decides she wants to try it, so she grabs one of her coworkers. She doesn't know him very well. She says, I've heard about this experiment. Do you want to try this thing with me? He says, sure. What? Why not? So they go to a bar. They ask each other the 36 questions. After they ask the questions, they go to a bridge. And you know what they do? They stare into each other's eyes for four minutes. You know what happens next? She writes the article for the New York Times... To fall in love with anyone, do this, because she marries the guy. <laughs> a, if you want to find what these questions are, if you want to test this out, go to, go to New York Times, right? <laughs> do it after Wednesday Night Fellowship. The campus minister who told me about this experiment uh, is a guy named Matt Howell. Uh, he's the one who shared this amazing story with me. He asks, and now I'm going to quote him here, what is it about this experiment that works? Right? What about it draws people together? And here's what Matt concludes, and I really agree with him. He says, here's the secret. This experiment gives somebody an experience of two things. First, number one, someone sees everything about you. You don't have the opportunity to be shallow. You're revealing the deepest parts of your heart. But then, number two, you get to experience someone knowing all of these things about you but not looking away in disgust. They look at you, and they refuse to leave you. They see you for who you really are, and then they lock eyes with you, and they say, in their silence, 
I'm here. I'm not leaving. I'm not grossed out. I'm not going anywhere. And if you experience this kind of spiritual, emotional nakedness, and you experience that same kind of acceptance, of course you're going to want to marry that person. Of course you want to. This is what sex points to. Sex is a physical embodiment of this kind of love. It's a physical embodiment of being completely seen, of being completely exposed, completely known, completely loved, completely embraced. In the words of Genesis 2.25, it's being naked and not ashamed. Genesis 2.25 is not simply referring to physical nakedness there. It's being utterly naked, physically, emotionally, spiritually, bearing it all. And the other person not being disgusted, but moving towards you in delight. This is what you want most, it's what you want more than anything. And this is the reality that sex points to. When you binge eat, or you light up, or you browse social media, what you really want is not a potato chip, or a cigarette, or a bunch of likes. What you really want is to feel different. You want to feel full. You want to feel calm. You want to feel connected. And the reason why you want to have sex so badly is because you want to feel fully known and fully loved. You want to feel fully seen and fully embraced. Your cravings for sex have less to do with your hormones and more to do with your heart. Less to do with your hormones, more to do with your heart. There's a Catholic theologian named G.K. Chesterton. He once said, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. What he meant by that is that every time someone goes to a prostitute, what they are really looking for is the love of God. They want to be fully seen, fully known, fully loved. They want to have this experience of being naked, of being exposed, and also being embraced. Sex, at its best, is a sign that points us in this direction. It points us to the love of God, to a God who sees you for who you really are, to a God who sees the depths of your sexual sin and failure and shame, to a God who sees the ways that you sin against Him and others, but also to a God who doesn't run and hide from you in disgust. To a God who moves towards you with desire and delight. To a God who finds you so precious and so infinitely valuable that he's willing to give up everything in order to have you. In the Gospel of John, Jesus encounters a woman who's collecting water at midday. And the reason why she's collecting water at midday is because she doesn't want to be seen by anybody else. And the reason she doesn't want to be seen by anybody else is because she's had lots of sex with lots of different men. She is the talk of the town. And what they call her are things like whore and slut and damaged goods. But Jesus is looking for her. Jesus is seeking her out. 
not to shame her or to scold her, but to communicate to her in word and in deed that there is a God who loves her and wants to be reconciled to her. That she doesn't have to hide from him like she does everyone else any longer. And you know what the woman does next? She races back to the village, right back to all of the people who called her nasty names and she was afraid of, and she tells them, come, see a man who told me all that I've ever done. In other words, come and see a man who sees me to the bottom of my soul and doesn't leave. Come, see a man who sees all of my sexual sin and failures, but who doesn't turn away in disgust, right? but who stays, who embraces me. Her experience of the naked, not ashamed love of God transforms this woman. And it will transform you too. If and when you encounter it, it will transform you too. This is what you are really after. This is what sex ultimately points to. And whether you ever have sex or not, you can have it. It's the love of Jesus. Jesus loves you enough to meet you where you are at tonight. And he loves you enough not to leave you here. As we sang, there's hope for the hopeless and all those who strayed. Come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. There is rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. Let's pray.